The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to Squawkbox. These are your headlines. Netflix reports the biggest earnings miss in the streaming company's history with a slowdown in new quarterly subscribers, sending shares lower in after hours trade. Hopes for relief. U.S. futures rise as the Trump administration and Democrats make progress on a new stimulus package. But the White House chief of staff, Mark Meadows, warns that differences still remain. We've made uh, good progress and even uh, further progress today. Uh, we still uh, have a number of open items that still remain. The U.S. Justice Department files a landmark antitrust lawsuit against Google, accusing the tech giant of unfair practices in search and online advertising. Google's top lawyer calls the case deeply flawed. And second wave fears grip Europe, with the UK reporting its highest number of daily coronavirus cases since June, as the OECD Secretary General Angel Gurria warns of the lasting consequences of the pandemic. We're not out of the woods yet. Uh, no, it's, we're not out of the woods yet. We're actually just starting to walk into the woods, I'm afraid, because the economic consequences and the social consequences will last a lot longer than the virus itself. Haves and have-nots, companies that are doing incredibly well in the pandemic just because of their business model, not because they're profit gouging, just because they are suited to work from home, just because they are suited uh, to the market activity. And yes, it was a great case in point, wasn't it? We saw in the Swiss market on the SMI, the likes of UBS, which saw a 99% increase in its profits because of the excessive market trading. We saw Logitech, the peripherals, the devices, the, the, the screen top cameras, the speakers doing incredibly well in their figures as well. But what about the likes of Ericsson as well? Because there's a telecoms operator here, uh, a big part telecoms equipment maker here, uh, which not only should be benefiting, of course, from the increased technology we're all using, but also, of course, uh, from the Huawei dispute uh, and the concerns about whether or not it is controlled by the Chinese state, whether or not um, it presents security risks, and are there other players that can be used, such as Nokia, such as Boria, Ecolms, Ericsson. So let's have a look at their third quarter results with all that said as well. They said sales have come in at 57.5 billion Swedish kroner. Year-to-date results strengthen the company's confidence in delivering targets for 2020. Targets for 2022 remain. I haven't seen anything in between, but uh, 2022 remains. Let's see if we can find something about 2021 as well. Uh, third quarter reported gross margin has improved. So margins are improving. It's not about selling stuff. I keep trying to tell you lot out there. It's not about selling stuff. Anyone can sell stuff, but can you sell it profitably? Well, here, uh, an improvement in the margin to 43.1% from a previous figure of 37.7%. COVID-19 has so far had limited 
impact on our business. Very interesting. But we are closely monitoring any sign of change in the situation as well. Year-to-date results strengthen their 2020 target, as I say there as well. Let me give you some more numbers. The third quarter operating margin, 15% versus what looks like a negative 7.3% a year ago. So there must be some exceptions then. Underlying business fundamentals remain strong in North America, driven by consolidation in U.S., operator market, pending spectrum auctions and increased demand for 5G. Is that code? Increased demand for, is that code for actually we're picking up contracts and auction business because of the Huawei situation? Well, we'll ask Boreacom that as well. 5G contracts in mainland China had developed according to plan. So that's interesting. Contributing positively to profits in the third quarter, expected to improve further as well. And I find that quite interesting as well. So we're not seeing a backlash against the Western providers of 5G equipment in mainland China, as opposed to the backlash we are seeing about Huawei in some of the Western markets. But there's a lot to discuss there uh, later on. Let me just uh, go on a little bit. Telia and Ericsson continue to transform the Nordics and Baltics with exclusive 5G alliance as well. I think that's most of the uh, important figures for you as well. Uh, I'll just give you one more line. Actually, They say the pandemic has negatively impacted their sales in Latin America and Africa as well. But uh, there is plenty to digest in those numbers. Why don't we have a quick look at the shares? I'll just run you through them. 20.84% higher year to date. Uh, as you can see, I mean, they've made glacial progress. They're low, like a lot of stocks around the globe. Um, was, of course, in March, uh, 20th of March of trading, around about 74. But they haven't had the same oscillation uh, as many of these stocks. Uh, a good, solid rally over the five-year period, looking at them as well. I'm just looking at the valuation of the stock, actually, compared with some of the peers as well. Um, uh, price, momentum, mean estimates as well. Looking pretty much in line with the likes of Nokia and some of the key rivals out there as well. Uh, dividend yield on this stock, 1.5%. Right, coming up on the programme, I said it a couple of times, but uh, we will be speaking to the CEO of Ericsson. That is Borja Ekholm. That is a first on interview. And we'll do that one in around about an hour and five minutes for you. Mentioned the headlines. Lots of tech news overnight, wasn't there? The news about Google, we'll come to that in a few moments' time, but also Netflix. Well, the shares fell more than 5% in extended trading. This after the streaming giant reported the biggest earnings miss in the company's history. Uh, subscriber growth slowed sharply, also missing forecasts. Well, Arjun's going to run us through the numbers. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning, Steve. Yeah, let me just give you those headline figures to kick off with. EPS coming in at $1.74 versus $2.14 expected. And the key number here is really around the global paid net subscriber ads coming in at 2.2 million versus 3.57 million expected. So a huge shortfall there. And let me just focus on two key points that the market watches. That is those uh, subscriber numbers and content as well. Now, for the subscriber additions, uh, you saw in the first two quarters, Netflix get a huge uptick given people staying at home because of the pandemic and binging on Netflix shows. Netflix did warn after its second quarter earnings that that growth momentum couldn't continue but these numbers for the third quarter fell short of even their own target so that really is a big concern as well going forward. Uh, they did say that Asia Pacific now was the biggest uh, contributor for the first time to their global uh, growth in membership accounting for 46% so that's certainly uh, a slight bright spot but overall those numbers were pretty low. 
Now, let me move on to content, the Netflix originals. You know, this is the lifeblood, really, of the platform. Now, the coronavirus has hit production of some of those big-name uh, productions at the moment. Netflix has said those have restarted and expects uh, each quarter next year, year on year, that the number of Netflix originals coming to market will be higher. So that's a positive sign. But I think, really, the overall uh, message here from the Netflix story, if we look at the stock, it's up 62% this year is trading on a PE of 90 times. And Steve, you and I have discussed this many times about what happens with Netflix next. How does it continue to grow, particularly as you've got more intense competition coming from the likes of Disney, of course, Peacock, uh, Apple and others as well. And that really, I think, is a big concern for the market is has what we see with Netflix at the first half of the year, just a sort of uh, a bump that they've got from people staying at home. Or is this something they can sustain over the longer term? And I think these Q3 numbers really has been a concern for the market that perhaps uh, the growth story in Netflix could begin to slow over the longer term. I guess only time will tell. Steve, back to you. Thank you very much indeed for that, Arjun. Well, let's um, do a little bit more uh, digging into this stock as well. Amanda Lyons is with us, investment manager for Disruptive Growth and Technology at GAM Investments. Uh, Amanda, I suppose the first question to ask now is that when these companies, which are disruptive and growing aggressively, when they get all grown up, then they get disrupted by other players as well. Is Netflix having growth pains? Um, good morning. Uh, I don't think we're seeing that, actually. I mean, if we, we look at 2020, as you mentioned before, we've had a lot of new competitors enter the space and we've seen incredible growth by Netflix. Yes, this quarter we look at the um, net subscribers um, and it, it, it was a disappointment. But if we take a step back and sort of put it into perspective, the net ads for 2020 are, are going to come in probably close to 6 million above Netflix's previous best year and around 34 million net ads this year. And, and the platform is close to 200 million subscribers. I mean, if you management made some comments on the call last night saying that as um, subscribing net ads normalize next year, um, we'll get back to sort of the, the subscriber growth that we've seen in previous years, which is sort of these high 20 million, just shy of 30 million net ads a year. So there's, there's no um, suggestion that competition is having any big impact. And if you do, if you look at sort of some of the survey work, survey work around, um, Netflix is still the number one choice. All of these other platforms that are coming to the market are sort of additional. They're the add-ons. They're the, the extra platform that you have as well to sort of beef up some additional content. But if, you, if you're looking for high quality and um, uh, sort of quality and quantity of content, it's very hard to find something better than Netflix out there. I, I would go as far as to say there isn't anything better. They are in they're the number one spot and that's that's not changing anytime soon. What about the rivals from the likes of Disney as well? And of course the activists have turned around to them and say put more money into the streaming and literally it seemed by coincidence or otherwise within forty eight yeah. hours Disney had turned around and said, Okay, we'll put more money into streaming that and we'll, we'll really try and beef it up as well. So the quality uh, alternatives that you talk about, they are coming up the rails, aren't they? Yes, they are. And, and th th I mean, I'm not negating Disney as a competitor. You know, it's a formidable uh, company and they have an incredible back catalogue. But it's a very different offering to the Netflix offering in, in terms of, of what you're getting from a Disney Plus as a subscriber to Netflix. One of the things that I think you have to think about with content and Netflix and what it's offering really has is it comes back to that subscriber number. They really are uh, a truly global distribution platform 
and they have this huge number of subscribers. So when they go out and bid for content, they can be much more efficient than anybody else in the market. So their return that they get on an investment for a piece of content, whether it's an original or something that they're going out and buying, and because of the scale that they've got, it can be much more efficient to them and therefore they can bid at a higher price or put more money into a production than some of their competitors and get incredibly high quality productions and content that people want to watch. And you've also got to um, consider the amount of data that they've had in their multi-years of operation. They've been doing this for a really long time. They know what content works and what um, brings in new subscribers and also retains subscribers. Um, and they therefore can put their investments and their bets into those areas. So we, this is why we sort of see hit after hit at Netflix and why you can have content on Netflix that um, didn't work on other platforms, but had a huge success on platform on on Netflix itself. I mean, this this quarter alone, I, I don't know if you've come across the show Cobra Cobra Kai, which was a Karate Kid spinoff. If you remember that movie back from the eighties, and um, that was originally on YouTube subscription channel and was basically a bit of a flop. Um, Netflix then bought it, and it's been a huge hit on them. And this is the power of their recommendation engine. They were able to show. Um, to show that um, that content to people that they knew would be interested in it, and turned it into a huge hit, and they've now recommissioned that, oh, commissioned it for additional seasons. So you really see the power of this platform that um, other platforms just don't really have that that same level of, of scale and, and ability to do that. I've got a bone to pick with you already now by saying I don't I don't know if you remember that from the eighties. Oh come on, you know I was around in the eighties watching Karate Kid. Don't give me that as well. I had my own little crush on Elizabeth Shue in the first one, I think it was as well. Anyway, look, my point is, Amanda, is it? Yeah, oh, were you around, Stephen, in the eighties? Yes, of course I was. Right, here's the point, Amanda. Is it worth double what it was a year ago? Because that's exactly what it's trading now. Well, I, I think this all comes down to the to looking at the free cash flow and and and. The, how the pictures changed at Netflix. I mean, if we step back to a year ago, one of the big bear cases, I suppose, for Netflix was this free cash flow burn, and would it ever be a sustainable business? So you look at the burn, like in 2016, they burnt one and a half billion, that increased two billion in 2017, three in 2018, and all the way up to 3.2 billion cash burn last year with guidance of them sort of saying, expect us to burn cash for the foreseeable future. That has totally changed. We've seen this year from the increase in subs, the, the leverage in the model, and they're now saying they're going to do 2 billion positive free cash flow this year. And the rhetoric's totally changed from management going forward that that, that actually is going to be sustainable or at least break even and, and self-funding is now sort of tangible. It's now in sight. It's almost in, in touching distance. That, that totally changes the dynamic for the company. And if you look at it on a DCS basis and you look at the intrinsic value that you know there's still plenty of upside for this company as they continue to grow into that valuation just a quick word before i move on to the next um question as well you own this company in your fund do you amanda yes and you yes, own it personally do. as well just no i don't know okay that's great i just want to get that disclosure out there as well yeah, okay sure what, what, what else do we like out there amanda we've spent a lot of time looking at netflix what else should our viewers look at in this space well, I think if we look at one of the other companies that reported last night, we had incredible numbers coming from 
um, from Snap. Um, and I expect that to sort of see, um, play through in some of the other advertising names. I think Pinterest is one that will benefit from advertising growth in a similar way that Snap has this quarter and is maybe not looked at or um, not given the same attention as some of the big advertising plays. A lot of the focus is on the Googles and Facebooks of this world. But actually, some of these um, smaller plays have a lot of <clears throat> upside potential as they um, as they get their their uh, advertising products in line, and they can for, for Pinterest specifically, where it links so closely to e-commerce, it has a, a huge growth path ahead. Very very nice to speak to you, Amanda. Despite Lovely the fact that you are inquiring, was I around in the early eighties? <laughs> I'm presuming you didn't see it first time around. I did actually. Did you really? I, I don't, don't believe I don't that. Don't know if I want to age myself. With that <laughs> Let's leave it no more. I'm not supposed to ask a lady those questions. Amanda, lovely to speak to you. Thanks for lovely your notes last you. night, and thanks for coming on early this morning. Amanda Lyons, investment manager, disruptive growth and technology at GAM Investments. Right. Well, while I was uh, watching Karate Kid in the '80s, I was probably munching on some Roundtree's Macintosh. Yeah. That ages a few of you as well, yeah. Roundtree's Macintosh taken over by Nestle, yeah? Oh, you knew that. Right, okay, Nestle. Let's have a look. Why I think Nestle's interesting this morning is because we've had a stuttering performance in consumer staples already this week, haven't we? you recall Jeff and I talking at length about Danone and how they hadn't taken advantage of what I thought was a very strong performance in many ways from people buying a vast amount of goods, whether they needed it or not, throughout the coronavirus epidemic in terms of consumer staples as well. So let's just have a look at how Nestle are getting on as well. And I don't think uh, they're sitting on the same problem on a nine-month basis that... um that Danone have as well. So let's go through the numbers, shall we? They report nine-month sales for 2020 guidance. They expect organic growth of around 3% versus 2 to 3%. So that's to the top end of the range now. Nine-month organic growth up 3.5%. Uh, third quarter up 4.9%. So that is a robust performance compared with the nine-month figure, as you can see. Uh, total nine-month sales decreased 9.4% to 61.9 billion Swiss Franks, but I think the key here uh, is the organic figure that you should be looking at as well. Um, they very kindly put a couple of um, flashes in German for me as well. Uh, uh, I, I, won't, I won't embarrass myself first thing in the morning. It was a long while since I did my German O-level in the mid-80s when I was watching Karate Kid, drinking, eating round to his Macintosh. Uh, they say the new uh, current strategic views are fully on track. Underlying trading operating profit margin is expected to improve. Um, demand for at-home consumption, here we go, trusted brands and products with health benefits remains strong. So that is tapping into uh, a few of those trends we're talking about, i.e. trusted brands, at-home consumption. Of course, um, people aren't going out so much. They are doing a lot more at home, so hence they're looking for better brands at home, I guess. Elevated demand for at-home consumption. I think we kind of knew that. Underlying EPS in constant currency and capital efficiency are expected to increase. There, you're already looking at the shares, so let's do that together, shall we? Year-to-date, it's been solid but unspectacular, I would suggest. A 2.5% increase in the share performance, which, again, considering they were down at 90 uh, Swissy down in March again, again a, a substantial but unspectacular rally 
off those lows as well. Last traded 107.4 Swissy as well. That's the uh, one-year performance as well on that share. So unspectacular, but they don't look like they're having the same pitfalls that peer group Danone uh, have been exhibiting as well. And we'll just have a, another quick look, actually, because there is one more number I want to have a quick look at on that, and that is the price-earnings ratio. And I've, I've used this as a metaphor for the broader uh, sector as well. This one trades at around about 23 times, looking backwards as well, on the, uh, on the last 12 months as well. Right, OK, let's move on. Let's go back to the politics. White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows says stimulus talks have advanced, but the Trump administration and Democrats still need to overcome major differences to strike a deal before the November election. This after a 45 minute call between House Speaker, only 45 minutes this time. What they have like the previous day it was an hour, wasn't it? They're spending a lot of time on the phone, more than me and my mum. Uh, the call anyway lasted 45 minutes between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and her negotiating partner, Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin. Uh, talks are set to resume later today, and that's quite significant, isn't it? Before we move on to uh, Meadows, because I'm pretty sure the deadline was yesterday. Didn't we run the headline yesterday that the deadline was coming? So they've obviously shot past that. It's probably like a Boris Johnson deadline, isn't it? Uh, White House Chief of Staff Meadows said there's a lot of ground to cover, but uh, he tells CNBC he hopes some kind of agreement uh, before the weekend. We've made uh, good progress and even uh, further progress today. Uh, we still uh, have a number of open items. I want to stress we're not just down to uh, a difference of language and a few dollars. We still have uh, a ways to go, but uh, I would say that the conversations today were productive enough uh, to continue to have uh, discussions tomorrow. Have a look at this rally behind me here. Um, well, it's actually in front of me, but now it's behind me. Here we go. Um, the S&P was at 1.5% at one stage and then just gave back a bit of ground. So this will go down as a day that broke the downtick, broke the five-day uh, downward move. First time we've seen that since August 2019 on the Nasdaq as well. But I wouldn't say it's the most spectacular, convincing rally of all time, especially when you give up uh, a whole percentage point on the S&P 500 as well. But there wasn't that much volatility out there as well. And, you know, you, you'd have all have fallen in love with buying call options. Not all of you, but some of you. You think call options is the, is, is the new Bitcoin or whatever it is, I don't know, whatever you guys are trading. But the fact of the matter is, the volatility of the last couple of days this week have not sufficed to give you the money you need from trading that gamma, trading that premium there. So your Vega would have come off a little bit. Is that confusing for you? We should have learned about those bits before you started buying call options. Anyway, here you go. The S&P was up five tenths and the Dow was up 0.4 of 1% as well. Um, in terms of individual sectors moving, energy was modestly interesting to the ups. In fact, it was interesting because we had WTI back above 41 and we had Brent back above 43 as well. Consumer staples, I'm spending a lot of time talking about those, aren't I? They were down 0.1 of a percent as well. So again, the dispersion between the highest performing sector energy and the lowest performing sector consumer stable, very, very small difference there, 1.2% as well. Sometimes you can see as much as 5 6%. Have a look at the treasuries. Is there something going on here? Look at that. Wow, that's a breakout. Trust me, <laughs> if I'd have shown you this five years ago, you'd go, what? 0.83, but trust me, that's a breakout compared to where we were. What have we been trading? 0.75 to 0.77, 0.78. We're now at 0.83. I guess a real breakout is 0.9 or something as well. But anyway, the yield curve steepening, people getting a little bit more optimistic because spent a lot of time talking to you about data this week as well and some of the numbers which sometimes go under the radar because we're too busy talking about stimulus or the election or Google or something. But actually, the housing starts and building permits, again, they were really solid in September as well. And we had the NHB, NAHB uh, business sentiment survey or in that sector previously this week as well. Retail sales tail end of last week, GDP out of China. So 
As much as I get the fears, I think they're clear and present on employment and we'll get initial jobless claims later in the week and we've got Beige Book later on today. And I understand, but actually in looking at the pure raw data, again, maybe it's looking backwards, actually some of it's not that bad as well. So 0.83 on your 10-year is where you have. So uh, just picking up a little bit that yield as the underlying pulls off a little bit. Dollar crosses, um, the interesting one here is your yuan, which is not on there, okay. Uh, 0.296, oh, there we go, nice work, very quick, nice. Um, yeah, you've got uh, the yuan, basically trading at its highest levels in a very, very long time as the dollar continues to decline. Uh, here's one quite, int- uh, quite interesting, I'll just make the director move the camera around just a little bit. Did a little bit of work today, he's doing not a lot. Uh, 0.2976, um, are, the, are the talks happening or not? I don't know. Depending, if you tap in Brexit into a well-known search engine, apparently you can use other ones apart from Google. Um, That's what the US Department of Justice says you can't. Anyway, point being here is um, uh, it looks like it's close to 1.30. Anyway, coming up on the show, I've got the Dutch Human Resources CEO of Randstad waiting in the wings as well. So I will be speaking to Jacques van der Broek. And if you're listening, Jacques, we'll be with you in a very short while after the break. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Straight to Jacques Vandenbroek, who is the CEO of Randstad as well, one of the largest staffing groups in the world as well. Jacques, just to tell us, how are things at the moment in your view of the global employment market? Yeah, good morning. We are actually the biggest uh, HR services firm in the world, just so you know. Good morning, Steve. Uh, yeah, well, big bounce back uh, since uh, the second quarter. Second quarter, we lost 25% of our revenue, and now we lost 13.13 uh, with uh, a good surge upward at the end of the quarter, ending at minus 11 in September, and with some good momentum into October. So, you know, given the circumstances, we're actually uh, quite pleased with our results currently. Now, looking at the list of the largest staffing companies in the world, Jack, I'm going to go with it for now because I haven't got the relevant information. I need to second source that. In terms of where your biggest concerns are, where are they, Jack? Um, yeah, the biggest concern is, of course, the resurgence of, uh, of the virus. Uh, we, we do see in many markets that uh, yeah, people are apparently having difficulty uh, living up to the discipline which is necessary. Uh, discipline which you've seen in Asia, which you see in countries like Denmark and, 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 and New Zealand. And, and, and once you do that, uh, you can weed out the virus. But, uh, well, in the UK, but also here in the Netherlands, that's not really happening. So, you know, uh, that is the only uh, worry we have because uh, apart from that, uh, yeah, we're we are optimistic of things coming back. Uh, I compare it to 2009, and in 2009, everything was, with the financial crisis, really down. But now we have some sectors which are still doing well, life sciences, anything online, food retail, of course, any, anything around healthcare, testing, and a lot of government support. And then there's sectors which are really down, and they're still down, which is airlines, travel, restaurants, and events, and also automotive. And, and, and those will probably stay uh, down a long time, but, but the rest is actually doing well. 
So, yeah. Jacques, what, 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 about, what about our viewers who are concerned about the quality of the jobs? They're all being told to reskill. They're all being told about 21st century employment opportunities as well. And there's a very interesting report out that I was working with the World Economic Forum in the last 24 hours as well. Are those jobs actually there for our viewers who are being told to go out and reskill? Uh, the 21st century digital jobs are there. Yeah, they are. And there's the short term of COVID where a lot of, let's say, uh, sectors or jobs in the sectors I just mentioned are lost. Longer term, it will be the white collar jobs that will be lost. So basically, everybody out there, go and find yourself the security of where you want to go. Uh, and, and, and companies like of, likes of us can give you the perspective uh, working in, in logistics, in healthcare, in education, basically anything where you need to work with yeah, your head, your hands or your, your personality. So there are jobs out there. It's going to be tough at least until the summer next year. But, you know, be prepared. Don't wait and go out there. Yeah. I think companies are doing their utmost now to make sure their employees can either work safely from home or work safely in the office. And I actually hold my hands up. I think my company is doing a great job on that as well. But Jacques, yeah. does the destiny of the employment market, is it all depend on a vaccine now? Or actually, are we just learning to live with COVID? Um, I think it's uh, certainly the latter. Uh, I think we should we should work with all due respect and then and, and, and then go home <laughs> and limit social uh, interaction as much as possible um, uh, and and work uh, work online uh, of course if that, you can do that that is what we need to go through I think until the summer of next year yeah and then there's the next phase but we 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 need to cope with the virus we need to live with the virus and I think it's possible. In terms of um, the actual money that people are being paid as well, have you got a decent barometer, Jacques, on, on what salaries are doing? I mean, I just look at the number of jobs that many people, certainly on the union side, certainly the OECD side, who are fearing about the loss of large amounts of job. But are people managing to hang on uh, to substantial salaries in what was something that was beginning to be an improving trend before this crisis? Yeah, well, I think uh, uh, salaries is... But uh, well, just for our business, uh, we uh, at, the, at the depth of the crisis, uh, we lost 150,000 jobs and we've re we recovered 140,000, uh, 142,000 already, so 95%. So I think that's the big theme. Uh, keep your job first. And, and if you're at danger of losing your job, go out and see what's out there for you. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show weekdays on CNBC.